Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 373 is recorded live June 28th, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we have some awesome weather. Type of weather you live in Michigan for until this weekend where we'll roast everybody out of the state. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well and I have no complaints whatsoever with hot, sunny weather. I still have a flooded basement and uh, it's what, 43 days on and off. So I'd like to, you know, I talked about the desert earlier. Uh-huh. I wouldn't mind about 20 days of solid dry would dry out my basement. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. It's been, it's been pretty soggy. I, I got my basement, uh, dry again. So it's, uh, it's a little, been a little moist, quite a bit of rain. And yeah, well, uh, four days ago we had five inches of rain in six hours. Yeah. Well, some of the farmer fields here are just crying. Uh, I, I was talking to somebody cause I, I, I don't know if I mentioned last week on the show, but strawberries, he just wasn't seeing strawberries out, and, and I guess what's happened is there's so much moisture, the strawberries split, uh, meaning they just uh, couldn't contain themselves. So they just uh, have about half the crop they normally do here in Michigan. Yeah, we haven't got hit by the price increase yet because they started out last month at five bucks, and now they're a buck and a half. Yeah, well, I, at, at, you know, the local, but they're not local. No, they're 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 not. They're California. Well, that, that was my complaint. I was going into the, the stores, and I wasn't seeing any of the Michigan stuff, which, you know, I know. I got friends who are farmers, and it's like, why why can't we why can't we get this? But, you know, they got their obligations as suppliers, and it takes a little bit of time to get in. But that's not why people are listening. They hear us talk about strawberries. Hopefully, they're here to, to talk about some or listen about some scuba diving. And I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Derek and Eric have, have rolled on in and are listening, and... And they have, a, I think, almost a much more exciting conversation in the chat room than we do. So both Northern and Southern Hemisphere appear to be getting some diving in. And our first article on the list is scuba regulators recalled for drowning hazard. Uh, and I'm going to, gosh, even, even the regulator companies are conspiring against us. Is it Hush, H-U-I-S-H, Outdoors, is recalling about 4,500 scuba diving regulators over a drowning hazard. The Consumer Product Safety Commission says that the regulators can restrict airflow at low tank pressures below 500 PSI. The scuba diving regulators were sold nationwide from October 2017 through June 2018 under the brand's names of Hollis and Oceanic. The CPSC says anyone using the regulators should stop using them immediately, contact your local Hollis or Oceanic dealer for a free repair. So far, no re- injuries have been reported. Nine models are affected by the recall. To check if yours is included, look for corresponding serial numbers laser etched into the body's first stage. Part numbers and UPC numbers are printed on the packaging only. Now, say this kind of stuff you really like to know because, you know, if you don't happen to be looking for something and you stumble across it, how would you know your regulators have got a problem? No, you would Unless, hopefully, your, your dive, you know, your whoever bought it from sent you out a recall notice. Yeah, and that's the thing where I'm bad about 
you know, I just I just uh, installed a hot water heater and a water softener here at home, and they always want you to send in your registration. And, but that but if you don't do that, how do they know to contact you? And especially in the case right. of a, a regulator, say you got your own compressor at home and you're not even going in the dive shop, uh, you may never realize it. Yeah, but generally on my gear, I do that registration for that one particular you know reason. If they have a recall, I'd like to know. You know that low tank pressure below 500 psi. You know if you're at 100 feet and they're coming up, of course by that low, you know you should be halfway up, if not all the way. You know 500 pounds and you can't breathe when you really need it. That's going to be a big hazard. Yeah. Well, if if you're so effectively, what this is saying is below 500 pounds, you may not get anything. So. You yeah. really, you really need to. Five hundred is really zero. If you can't breathe, there's nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah especially you know, hundred feet when you really need a deep breath. Oh yeah, still bad enough at ten feet. Yeah. So just uh, I was some... surprised too, though. Policies, which are you know what I consider pretty good regulators. Yeah. Well, and this makes you wonder what caused it that it's such a narrow band because this is not a lot of regulators for that size of company. I mean, they're saying forty five hundred. But there's, these are regulators that were uh, sold from October 2017 to June 2018. So it's really only been the last six or seven months. So it tells me that there's a specific component that is probably not what they expected or they were tuned a little differently coming from the factory than what yeah. they should have been. So it's got to be one of those two things to be such a narrow band. Otherwise, you would see uh, – because these designs, I mean, they're not redesigning – regulators every year it's not like cars i mean they're going to try and get a few years out of a out of a design so this is saying it's either it was a new model and they found something in it or it's one of those other situations so make sure you check if you've got that uh if you've recently bought a hollis or an oceanic uh, since october 2017 take a look and then we have a divers uh who have done something they've recovered a prosthetic leg lost by a watercraft rider a man who lost his Leg in a motorcycle crash has been reunited with the prosthetic replacement he lost while riding a personal watercraft in upstate New York. The Corinth Fire Department said the man lost his $127,000 prosthetic leg while riding his watercraft on a dammed section of Hudson River in Sarasota County on Thursday. Divers searched Thursday evening and for three hours Friday without luck. On Sunday, the Corinth dive team and volunteer scuba divers searched again and found the leg in about 15 feet of water. The owner lives in nearby Greenfield Center, told officials leg was made in Australia and had electronic components. Wow. I think that was Austria, actually. Aust- oh, yeah, you're right. Austria. I was thinking Australia. Austria. I, I wonder how he lost it because it sounds like he might have been really zipping around on that ski do and dumped it. And, you know, you think something with an impact mm-hmm. made you lose the leg? That's what I'm guessing. Is he, is he dumped it or something happened? I'm sure you account for that, but uh, did, I, did I ever tell you my, my jet ski story with my wife? No. Um, well, out here on, on Lake Chapin, not too far from the house here, we had friends who had, they had a whole bunch of jet skis, and I had uh, gotten out on one and, and drove it for a while, and she was about six months pregnant at the time, and she didn't want to ride a, alone. So I got out there, I, so I said, well, I'll take you for a ride. She goes, I don't want to get wet. You know, I don't, don't want to get in the water. I just... Not up to it. And I'm like, no, don't worry about it. So we get out there and and she's a little bit nervous. And I'm like, these things are just about impossible to tip over. And at that point, you know, anybody who's done a jet, ridden a jet ski is, 
when they're under power is when they're is when they can be controlled. But as soon as you stop putting jet or you know water out the back, they're pretty much unmaneuverable. You know, you can turn left and right and they don't do anything. So as I tell as as I'm telling her how safe this thing is, uh, I uh, we started to drift and without power to it, I turned it and it didn't go. And then I realized, oh well, I need to hit the throttle to you know to get it to maneuver away from whatever obstacle uh, we were drifting down river towards. Uh, but when I put the jet to it, I had it turn ninety degrees to the right, which when you do that on a jet ski, the jet ski tends to be like a bucking bronco and just say, "I'm going this way without you." So, so you're saying that your wife got wet? Yeah, she did get wet, and the people on shore about a quarter mile away could hear what she was uttering, which luckily the my daughter hadn't been born yet or she would have learned some some new words. But we didn't lose a leg. So that that was a the right. plus. No, no. I, I wonder if the leg was waterproof. I mean a hundred and twenty seven thousand dollar They said there was electronics in I'm yeah, you know, I'm sure they try to make it durable, you know, because you're gonna be outside and it could rain and you know, you sweat and you do things, but you know, submersed in a lake for a week and a half, uh, not a week and a half, a day and a half. Yeah, probably not. So, but I, I'm sure it's it's much less expensive that they recover the leg to do any repairs that were needed. Because yeah, some of that, yeah. caught, some of that, because I I read another article and they talked about it was a carbon fiber construction and it's molded to the limb. And then uh, depending on how it's controlled, you know, they're going to have you know sensors that are are designed. So you, but so probably half that cost they are able to recover by having the leg back. And then here we have an article, which I, it just caught my eye because it is shipwreck hunting, eight undiscovered shipwrecks of the Great Lakes. And the very first photo is who you would expect if you're going to do a credible article on shipwreck hunting in the Great Lakes. They have David Trotter. Uh, and I'm assuming that this is a list that they put together with his input. They said, not for actual treasure as the ships met their fate in the Great Lakes weren't known to carry any gold, valuables, or jewels. The prizes are the shipwrecks themselves. Of an estimated 10,000 ships believed to have been lost in the lakes over the last four centuries, only a third have been found and identified. Amateur and experienced shipwreck hunters hit the water every year as the warm weather, uh, as the weather warms, eager to make the discovery and unearth pieces of the past. There's still some real mysteries out there, says David Trotter, a renowned shipwreck hunter who has found about 100 lost ships. The cold freshwater Great Lakes means wrecks are typically better preserved than, they're, than they are in the oceans. Advances in sonar and positioning technology have led to a surge in discoveries in recent years. Still, a number of famous wrecks remain missing for now. Here are the stories behind some of the most unique and sought-after wrecks in the Great Lakes. And you'll have to click on to, over to the article because we're not going to read them all. But uh, the first one is the one that <laughs> it's the kind of the joke of the Great Lakes because it, I, it's been found like every year, I think, for the last 10 years, the Griffin. And that is the uh, uh, built by French explorer Rene Roberts the Cavier, and I'm, I'm basically I'm, a small ship. Yeah, the ship was the first European vessel to ever sail in the Upper Great Lakes. Disappeared during its maiden voyage in 1679 after picking up animal furs in Wisconsin. So that's one I'm I'm not sure if they'll ever find that because as great as it's preserved, unless it's been under the sand and you're going to have it come back out. I mean, that'd be something I'd, I'd love to still be alive if they do find it, but uh, I'm not too optimistic. This was covered up in the uh, Shepherd Festival in Lansing, 
Yeah. This was actually, I went through the listings of it, and the majority of these were covered by individuals talking about what they're looking for, and one was the Griffin, and this one couple believes they have some really, really good areas to continue to look for. Mm-hmm. It seems like the key item is if you find one with a brass cannon or what you call a rail cannon, rail cannon, uh, yeah, if you find one with that, then you found the group. So that's really the, the, the key item. Are they sure that that I mean, hasn't been recovered some other way? You would probably have heard about it. I mean, and it depends. Did it really sink? Was it burned at shore? Did the Indians take it and right. hide the cannons? Right. So at some point in time, you're thinking the next 300 years, somebody has got to find that cannon. Uh, One would think so. I mean, if you look at the reports and the Indians say it went out into a bad storm and we told them not to and they did, mm -hmm. that means it's offshore, which means when you find that wreckage, you should probably be able to find cannon. My understanding, two were brass, the others were not. So a magnetometer should be able to pick that up or a metal detector. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. and as the sub-bottom profilers get better... um, or more common, you know, like how we've had the side scans now for the last ten years. You, you, if you get them, if you got magnetometers, common. Which do, do fishermen have a reason for a magnetometer? Generally not. Yeah, so it's still going to be fairly rare. Then the second one they have on their list is the Bannock Burn propeller-driven bulk freighter. Bannock Burn went missing with twenty sailors in Lake Superior during a November nineteen o two storm. Bits of wreckage, hatch cover, and parts of a cabin, according to the Detroit Free Press article, later were found floating in the middle of the lake. As the waters of Lake Superior reach the greatest depth at that point, it's probably that probable that none of the bodies will ever be recovered. Lake, Sur- lake Superior never gives up its dead. Now, they say that, but we, we know of wrecks up there where there are still bodies on. And that makes uh, you wonder. 19, pardon me? 1902? Yeah. 1902? Yep, it said December 2nd, 1902. Yeah, so I don't know about the bodies. You know, that's a hundred and something years. Yeah. I, the only reason I remember this one is because it was nicknamed the Flying Dutchman, mm-hmm. meaning they it's the ghost ship that people say they have seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they said it's been spotted many times since its disappearance, still prowling the waters. N- nice uh, painting they have in the article. Then we have the R.G. Coburn, October 1871, the nearly 200-foot paddle or propeller-powered R.G. Colburn was in Lake Huron carrying wheat and flour and barley. Uh, oh, and barrels of civil war when it c- encountered a horrific storm. It lost its rudder off Thunder Bay. The unsteerable ship was at the mercy of Mother Nature. She fell into a trough and raging sea, began to roll heavily, break loose the heavy barrels of silver ore. The barrels rolled against the side of the hull, smashing holes in the side of the ship. A survivor recounted in a Detroit Free Press article that people stayed remarkably calm, Amid the chaos, he praised a few women on board, saying, "Do not hear a scream from one of them, even when the craft settled down to her grave." They said some people made out in lifeboats, but about forty-five died. This is according to uh, Trotter. And then, as the one in our side of the lake, we have the Chicora. The passenger cargo carrying Chicora had already been tied up for the winter in eighteen ninety-five when its owners were asked to move a shipment of flour across Lake Michigan. The January twenty trip from St. Joe, Michigan, to Milwaukee went smoothly. Early the next morning, Jacora left Milwaukee to return home, departing about 10 minutes before the messenger boy arrived at the dock with an urgent telegraph. Message warned Captain Edward Steins not to set sail because the barometer was falling fast at Benton Harbor. But by then it was too late. All 25 people on board were lost. No bodies were ever found. 
Adding to the mystery were messages that washed ashore weeks later. On April 14th, a a bottle was found with the message, All is lost, could see land, if not snowed or blowed. Engine gave out, drifted to shore, and ice, captain and clerk, were swept off. We have a hard time of it, 10.15 o'clock. A week later, a jar washed up in Illinois with a note that read, Chicora engines broke, drifted in a trough of sea. We have lost all hope. She has gone to pieces. Goodbye, McClure engineer. A lot of people still looking for that. Clyde Custler isn't. Not this year. They have a new sponsor. They've been out with some sophisticated new equipment and a different pattern they're trying. So maybe MSRA will get lucky this year. That, and I believe they're still looking for the 2501 also. Yeah. Yeah, it, dep- it depends on which article, but I think the 2501 is the one they listed. But the Shkora would be a nice little find along with that as well. Yeah. And again, these are things where you know they're out there. There was enough uh, mass uh, made of metal that somebody's got to find it someday. Yeah. Then in the Inkerman. I've been doing search on that one myself. Kevin's been doing a bit of research, so have I. And actually, I went through the files at the Morton House mm-hmm. looking for other information that may not be as readily available. And uh, the one item alone in Benton Harbor that's quite interesting is the ship canal. Do you know the history of that? I don't know the official history, no. Yeah, that's going to be a topic down the road and uh, quite interesting, quite interesting. They're still not giving up hope about redigging the canal back and uh, rejuvenating downtown Benton Harbor. I would like to see it dug back up. Uh, I mean, it's, you're you're not doing anything with it now. Correct. So you, you might as well open it back up and you could recreate something, even if it's just a, a mimic of what it, what it had been before. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing they do need to address is how do you get a little bit of water flow through there so it doesn't turn into a ditch is what I've heard it, it was. It was interesting because uh, after they dug that canal, I know we're sidetracking here, but you know the where the Pawpaw River comes in? Uh-huh. Right. They actually dug that out because they were trying to get flow current through that to siphon water out of the rest of the canal, not siphon it, but to cause a current. Uh-huh. So then it would flow out into the river. So that ki- that kind of a happen. yeah, kind of like they, they thought in theory of Venturi type of effect. Where yep, absolutely, the, the, and it didn't. It started filling in the canal. So they had to, they actually built a dam a little bit downstream to minimize the flow rate so you wouldn't fill back in. It, yeah. It's quite interesting. A lot of history, but the reason it was so successful is they built boats there. They had lumber camps there. They had barrel stave companies there. So from you figure 1850 to at least 1900, that was a thriving, thriving area. Well, when, when, when you also think about the industry that we had, you had, uh, you know, Niles, uh, there's some of the roads there in Niles that uh, were actually canals, and they had a lot of businesses along them. And then, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you could actually navigate the river all the way to South Bend. Oh, yes, and further. Yeah. Uh, I, I learned a lot of items by doing some research. I've been looking for one called Davy Crockett. The interesting part about that one is that uh, if you can find it, it's going to be neat. They had, you know, like their... Uh, not the bow spirit, but you know, I have the, the, the maiden cut there on it, your bow spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. This one was a horse and a dragon. And they had their engine tuned up and exhausted such that it would blow through the dragon or the, the horse's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> that is interesting. So it would be really cool 
that if you found it and they did, you know, take the engine and the prop and all that, they may not have done that with the front part of the boat. That'd be quite interesting. Now, is the Davy Crockett, that the one that was in Lake Chapin? Actually, uh, the location that we were searching for a couple of years ago and have some hits on some items at the island that uh, it crashed on, which is called Crockett Island. And it was called Crockett Island because the boat sank there. Mm-hmm. We have had a hell of a time trying to find out what the island was called all before that. So we could oh. find it on an old map. Oh, where okay. we believe the island is now, it's under freaking water. Oh. But uh, I got a secondary location I can confirm on where we were doing our searching to see if that gels with this new location I did. Yeah. Because yeah, it makes sense. If you've got a boat that sinks in a river, it's naturally going to collect things. Because I, I, I noticed up there in, uh, between St. Joe and Benton Harbor there in the river, there's spots where an island will appear for a couple seasons and then go away. So if you had a vessel that stuck there, it would kind of become a barrier that would collect things. Yep. If you look at all the maps of the last 250 years of the St. Joe area since LaSalle was out here, and you know where the island is now out there with the trees and the bushes? Yeah. That comes and goes. Mm-hmm. And in some years, it's like totally nothing there except water. And then some years, you got a freaking island there. Yeah. So it, it's hard to find out, you know, a like hundred years ago, you have no idea what. Yeah. So I like some of those old, some of those old maps. Yeah. Yeah. Inkerman and uh, the Creosotes, two, a trio of French commissioned minesweepers, the Inkerman, Creosotes, Sebastopol. Uh, embarked on a maiden voyage in 1918 in November. Built in Ontario, Canada ships were supposed to sail to Europe to clear mines that were placed in the harbors during World War One. Three of them in Thunder Bay in Ontario headed towards St. Mary's River at Sault Ste. Marie, and only one of them made it. Linkerman and Creosos got separated from the Sebastopol, the and I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm slaughtering some French pronunciation, in a storm and they disappeared. They took with them 76 people, most of whom are members of the French Navy. Yeah, Kevin's been doing some uh, a lot of research. He, he, you know, you know, Kevin. He likes that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we had talked about this a couple of months ago. That that is some kind of mystery right there. I mean, looking at the logbooks where people last saw something, but uh, eventually they they're going to be found. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these will be found, and they'll be found probably in the the least convenient way for some people who find them. I think some of these may be you know, embedded in the spot and somebody will be doing some sort of work and then it's like, oh, crap, here's where they are. Uh, a water witch is, uh, a water witch is another vessel. The water witch is unique. Experimental propulsion system may have been its doom. The ship's engine was positioned sideways so the power, so it could power a propeller rather than a side wheel paddle mechanism, said Great Lakes historian and artist Robert McGreevy. The water witch was the fastest propeller ship on the Great Lakes, but had a vibration problem. The vessel was on Lake Huron in 1863 when it shook itself apart in the middle of the lake. Wow. That would be bad. Especially if you're on that boat. You wonder, was it a, a problem in design, or was there a mechanical problem that was just an early enough machine that people didn't understand it? Because it shook itself apart. seems like it would have happened a little bit sooner than here, unless there was something. The vibrations caused the stern timbers to open up, allowed the ice-cold lake water to hit the red-hot boilers and exploded. There was a ship that f- was following it. It saw it disappear, but they don't know it exploded until they retrieved some of the timbers in the lake. They could tell from the doors that it blew out from the inside. And then there's that's the... One, I was going to say, that's one ship, though, I really hadn't heard of. The Water Witch, had you? I, I hadn't. But that's, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of biased to our side of the lake, and 
over there in Lake Huron, we don't, I don't hear much about that. That's true. And then we have the hippocampus. And they, they said, was the hippocampus uh, felled by fruit? The ship was loaded with peaches when it left St. Joe in Benton Harbor, Michigan, area bound for Chicago in 1868. With a massive crop of peaches in Berrien County, Michigan that year, Captain Henry M. Brown felt pressure to carry as much fruit as possible on the voyage. According to the Michigan Shipwreck Research Association, MSRA, boxes of peaches were even stacked up on the deck. Free Press reported the vessel, which also carried passengers and a full crew, touched bottom multiple times at left shore with the aid of a tug. Several miles in the lake, the hippocampus became harder to control amid high winds and swelling waters. Brown ordered the fruit thrown overboard, but before the ship could be stabilized, it rolled on its side and started to sink. Nine passengers and 17 crewmen were lost. Fifteen survivors saved themselves by clinging to broken off pieces of the ship's upper works. I hadn't heard of that one either. I have, yeah. That was actually one of the ones that were identified in some of the research stuff uh, at the Morton House mm -hmm. the Museum. So that seems like that's another one that could be found here. Because it seems like with survivors, they would have a good idea based on time and weather where they had to be when it sank. Yeah. It's interesting when you go back and look how they search for the Chikora. Uh -huh. They searched for it for uh, six months. And I was reading some of the reports on it. What they did is took two tugs. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me. And they both put out long lines behind them. And then they had a line stretched between the grappling hook of those two anchors. And they dragged it on the bottom. When it was snagged, they'd go back and look and see what they snagged. Mm -hmm. That's when they originally refound the Havana was when they were looking for the Chikora. Makes sense. Yeah. Now, how did they... But it, but, but it wasn't refound until the uh, 60s, late 60s, uh, when divers started actually going out there and frequently, you know, and to look at it. Yeah. Well, th that's what I'm wondering is, okay, so you've snagged something. Were they doing hard hat divers, some of the old style? Were they going down to look, or how would they... It didn't say what they were doing there. Normally, they would snag stuff, and they, I won't say clamshell, mm -hmm. but... That was one mechanism they used for recovery. Yeah, because, I mean, clamshelling was common, especially if there was, I can't think waterlogged peaches were valuable enough to clamshell, but I guess if you... And you're not, right, and you're not going to clamshell, you know, ore, which is what the amount of carry. Yeah, but if you had something like, say, barrels of silver, silver, you may uh, yeah. decide you that that's, that's <laughs> worth a little clamshelling. And then I also heard that they would clamshell if, they, if there was a... Uh, boiler or some sort of expensive gear they thought they would recover. Yeah, anything that, you know, was on um, on shore that got wrecked there or hit a sandbar, they really tried to salvage everything they could. And so many ships so that did run around were eventually refloated, renamed. So it appears they may have been lost, but they were actually recovered. Yeah. Lived to sink another day. Yeah, which a lot of them did. Yeah, it's yeah, you know, we 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 weren't quite as engineering profi proficient as we are now. And then here we have a shipwreck unearthed in Denmark, according to the report in the Copenhagen Post, a well-preserved shipwreck. <laughs> in your well-preserved, yeah, I was going to say we've we've done over the before. <laughs> well-preserved bones. Re yeah, relatively well-preserved shipwreck has been found in the construction site near the eastern coast of the island of of uh, Zealand. The area has been underwater until the early 20th century. The ship made of oak some 500 years ago was preserved probably about 50 feet long and 20 feet wide. Archaeologists from the Museum of, uh, oh, goodness. 
there's letters in there. I don't even know if they're letters. Uh, Cytos, Dan, Mark have recovered iron nails, caulking, rope work from the ship. For more on archaeology and Denmark, you can go to the Denmark's blog dogs. Kind of reading between the lines here. So we've got global warming and, and rising water, but how was the ship underwater until recently? I don't know. I, I'm just using an example. Back in the uh, 60s in, in uh, Amsterdam and up in that area, I think it was called the Zyder Z, they actually had a huge, huge, huge wall to you know preserve the water. Then they sucked all the water out, so they made dry land out of it. They found aircraft ships from World War One, World War Two, and it was quite interesting to look at all the material they had covered and how much land they had now reclaimed from that aspect. If you went to that, that blog, they talked about the animals and people and skeletons and sacrifices that are found in Peapod in that area, which is really interesting. But I couldn't find anything referencing that shipwreck they were talking in their blog. Oh, so this is one of the areas, this is reclaimed land then. Yeah. Okay. And, and that makes sense. I just was kind of puzzled why you would have some, some land that all of a sudden was uh, wet and then was dry. And then Spain agrees to work with Colombia in recovery of the San Jose Galleon. A breakthrough in the San Jose Galleon dispute has emerged after President Juan Manuel Santos sent a letter of intent to the government of Spain welcoming their engagement in the salvage operation of the legendary ship. Both countries have been involved in a heated debate since the discovery of the shipwreck in 2015, claiming the estimated $17 billion in treasures rightfully theirs. The galleon was, drowned, was downed in 1708 off the coast of Cartagena, ambushed by the British Navy carrying precious cargo from the New World, including gold bullion, silver, exquisite gems. Over 600 men were killed in the attack causing Spain to argue that since the ship was sailing under their royal flag, the recovery cargo was theirs to inherit. Colombia, however, has insisted since the galleon sunk in what is today their territorial waters, ownership is what is widely considered to be the largest underwater treasure ever to be discovered belongs to the state. In April, a robot submarine collected the first ever photographs of the ship's hull, located 600 meters deep in the Caribbean. Over 6,000 pictures were captured regaining life into the age of conquest. The photos have also revealed the extent of the artifacts strewn across the ocean floor, 40 kilometers northwest of Cartagena, containing what could have been the largest emeralds ever extracted. In response to Santos' letter, Spain answered with a positive response, welcoming certain collaboration mechanisms that will facilitate the recovery of the so-called Holy Grail of shipwrecks. The diplomatic offensive marks a step forward in reaching compromise in the San Jose dispute, Finding a lasting solution regarding the future mass grave where Spanish sailors are buried. The proposal does not affect ongoing process in Colombia and the recovery of the San Jose Galleon, reads a press release from the Minister of Foreign Affairs concerning Spain's positive response to the memorandum. When, whenever I see arguments like this, I just think of different ways they could do it. Like, couldn't you retroactively apply rent to anything that's left in the bottom of the ocean at such an exorbitant rate that? whatever value is you would retain? I don't know. I think you go back down Admiralty back in the old days. You find it, it's yours. Yeah. If you took the time to go out there and look for it, it's yours. I, You know, something like that, though, and looking at the pictures. Oh, man. You know, if, you, if you'd had those two tugboats I've been talking about, and this time dropped too heavy down, you know, anchors with a heavy line across, 
with a deep submerged metal net and drag that sucker across the bottom, you're going to come up with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If you knew where it was and you could do that, you could, you're right. You'd find some things. And considering how, a, how valuable Canon is, you know, for the day. More of the diamond and, and rubies and, uh, and uh, in, in the in other any of it. Yeah. Now, now with the underwater ROVs, they can be selective and they'll, they'll pull some of this out. And, or even if they clamshell, you could go down with and direct what you want. You know, you'd be a lot more accurate. Yeah. Because it's to me, it, it seems like you could be pretty reasonable and say, you know what, let's just split it. Yeah. And then what you yeah. do is you, it's just say, you know what you, so they, they're saying it's potential in us dollars, 17 billion. Okay. So you take eight and a half billion. We'll take eight and a half billion. And then you work up some agreement where all the treasures get rotated on a, you know, so half stay in Colombia, half stay in Spain. And every eight years you, you rotate them back so that each now, museum. Isn't that logical? And it doesn't that make sense? Yeah. No, no government and politician will ever do that, but. Yeah, I want it all. You, you, you save all the court case. Uh, you, you create rarity for it. You know, the people, you know, people will, will come and view it and then you exchange it back and forth. Yeah. It just, it makes too much sense. I mean, it works for everybody. I mean, it should work for everybody. Here, if you, and if they, if they, if they want me to negotiate that for them, I can do that. I'm, I'm open to it. You know, 10% for 10%. I'll go ahead and do that for them. You also skipped one, by the way, the new venture ship, new venture ship. Sinking of the new venture ship delayed. Ah, that was probably one of them where they kept spamming me with uh, all sorts of stuff. I'm yeah. looking at it now. I yeah. had that come up. Well, let me see if I got that muted. So I'm going to mute the site in advance. So what this is, this is kind of a follow-up of Orange Beach, Alabama. Uh, after several months of delay, Alabama's newest artificial reef was set to sink on Thursday. I think it was today. Yep. Today is Thursday. I thought it was Wednesday for most of the week, but it is Thursday. Uh, the workers who had been hired to sink the ship were unable to because of equipment issues. The ship has several large air pockets. Oh, you bastards. That's why I got rid of it, Mac. Why? What happened? There's an ad that comes up over the whole damn page. There, I'm back to it. Oh. Yeah. It's like yeah, a, I don't have the ad. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty crappy ad. About time to break out the ad blockers. Yeah. Basically, what ended up happening, uh, the workers had to sink the ship because they're unable to, they had large air pockets. They need to fill the water before it could start sinking. Basically, what happens, they're able to fill those tanks with sort of the equivalent of a garden hose. It was only a little bit of a trickle and it was going to take a lot longer. New venture will stay offshore over the weekend with several wor- workers watching over it. They will get better equipment to do it over again on Monday. The new venture is a 250-foot ocean surveying ship that will be one of the largest artificial reefs in the state. They'll sink 20 miles off Orange Beach at 120 feet deep. Once she does make it below the surface, she'll become a shipwreck for divers to explore. Right. The picture is pretty nice. I mean, it's got a lot of freeboard there, doesn't it? Yeah, it's up It's up there quite a bit. I was I'm looking at the three ships by the side of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just make that other one really small. I mean, the other one, of course, is a tugboat and a fishing trawl. But uh, that's a, that'd be nice because you're not going to have to go down 120 feet to see it either. Mm-hmm. I bet that's every bit of 30, 40 feet high, don't you think? Oh, yeah, it's, it's way up there. It looks, it looks quite high. Did you click on that to take a look at the tour? No, no, I was trying to get out of that page as quickly as possible because that damn ad on it. Yeah, the pictures are pretty good. Uh, one of the, I mean, tons and tons of fish where they're putting it. And in the pictorial, Lots of lionfish. 
Oh, lionfish. Yeah. They haven't had it. They haven't tried one yet. Not yet. We're going to have somebody send us someone to. Yes. It seems to be possible. And then I always said, like submarines. That's the next one, huh? Yeah. They said photographic processing unlocks more secret from a- M. Goodness. HMAS AE1 shipwreck. Australia's first submarine lost for over 100 years continues to reveal its secrets through advanced 3D processing techniques of underwater still photography. Researchers are digitally reconstructing the sunken HMAS AE1 using about 8,500 still images captured of the submarine during an archaeological survey expedition earlier this year with the goal of gaining a better understanding of the submarine's fate. The interim results of the research will be presented today, June 22nd, in the Australian National Maritime Museum's Archaeology of of War Conference. AE-1 was the Royal Australian's Navy's first ever wartime loss, lost on the evening of 14th of September, 1914. After a multitude of search missions over the years, a vessel was eventually located off the Duke of York Islands December 2017 by a team led by Find A1 Limited and is supported by the Silent World Foundation, the Australian Navy, the Submarine Institute of Australia, the Australian National Maritime Museum, and Ugro NV. Dr. Andrew Woods, manager of the Hive Hub for Immersive Visualization Research, at Curtin University, explained the team has generated an interim digital 3D model of the shipwreck, providing the first whole look of the vessel as it currently lies on the sea floor. The 3D model can be rotated to view from any angle, showing the bow, stern, and fin with conning tower. It also sh- clearly shows the implosion areas of the submarine over the control room and forward torpedo room, Dr. Woods said. Dr. Woods explained that one of Ives' high-performance computers spent about three weeks processing the data set to generate the current low-resolution 3D model, and processing continues today to produce a high-resolution version. Eventual photography can only reveal a small section of the vessel at a time, not the whole wreck. However, through a process of photogrammatic 3D reconstruction, we are now able to create a complete, realistic, detailed representation of what the wreck actually looks like in its current state, which allows us to virtually visit the vessel as if we were physically present on the site of the sea floor. something that would be impossible to do in real life due to depth and remoteness. The underwater photographs of the AE-1 were captured earlier this year when Paul Allen-owned research vessel RV Petrol embarked on a voyage coordinated by Find AE-1 Limited to the shipwreck site of Papua New Guinea. Retired Rear Admiral Peter Briggs, chairman of Find AE-1 Limited, explained during this voyage, Australian observers were able to utilize the ship's remotely operated vehicle fitted with high-definition video and still cameras to undertake a comprehensive non-invasive survey of the entire vessel. This extraordinarily generous gesture by Paul Annals provided a comprehensive photographic record of the AE-1, which a team of experts is now analyzing to better understand what has happened to her. We anticipate issuing our report in September. And they go on a little bit farther. Uh, You know what's interesting about that boat, as far as I'm concerned? What's that? Well, you know how deep it is, right? Was it 300 meters? 980 feet, 300 meters. The operating depth of that sub? Is a hundred feet. <laughs> oh yeah. The the do not ever exceed depth was two hundred. Oh, right, right, and that. So uh, I wonder how much damage was done by crushing at a thousand. Now, do they think that this was sunk and then it went down? I mean, is this a case of where they were hit by a torpedo? Have they determined that? 
I don't remember that. I know they talked about their submarine's rear torpedo tube was fully open and that they didn't tell anybody about it to protect it from unauthorized salvages. Okay. So they didn't say, and I've got a couple of pictures of it. It's quite interesting. It looks like the old typical U-boat, small, skinny things. Yeah. Yeah, it looks, it looks interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit below the max depth. <laughs> yeah, I think it went past her crush depth. Yeah, a little, little, little violation. Somebody got in trouble for that one. Yeah, but that 3D imaging is awesome, isn't it? It it is amazing where that's coming. And then just imagine that looking at through that with uh, VR glasses or something, where you're able to move and look right up close to it. You're, you're mean, getting from that picture. It looks like the conning tower got ripped out of it, didn't it? Yeah. So we're getting to the point now where it's kind of like football games. It's actually better to view them on a computer or another device than to actually see them live. Of course, diving to 900 feet could be fun. And a small sub. The suspenseful wait is over. The unusual sonar anomaly detected by the aquatic robot off the coast of North Carolina isn't a shipwreck, and it isn't aliens, according to NOAA. Rather, it's geologic in origin. They reported in a tweet on June 27th. The finding, although not surprising, is a bit of a letdown after NOAA retweeted earlier that the that day that the anomaly could be an archaeological site, a geological formation, or otherwise. Which, which I saw the post, and they actually used a different image, which made you almost think that that's what they were going to see. Uh, scientists on board the NOAA's Okinus Explorer noticed the anomaly while mapping the seafloor off North, North Carolina. They dubbed the site the Big Dipper Anomaly and promptly sent a remotely operated vehicle underwater to investigate. Given that North Carolina's coast is called the Graveyard of the Atlantic because of many shipwrecks discovered in the area, NOAA scientists initially speculated the anomaly could be the remains of a long-lost ship. The ROV found otherwise. The anomaly turned out to be a rocky feature. The up, on the upside, the feature is great habitat for many species, including many fish already seen, no one noted. The Okinos Explorer currently ex- expedition called Windows in the Deep 2018 Exploration of Southeast U.S. Continental Margin is helping NOAA research the map to see floor unknown and poorly understood deep water areas of the Southeast United States. The expedition began on May 22nd and runs through July 2nd, so they're getting to the end. You know, as you read the article and you go to where it said they sent a remote-operated ROV underwater to investigate, I, I try to figure out why they put that one particular picture right there. Do you know the picture I'm talking about? Uh, which one? Well, if you went back up into the article where you said they dubbed the site the Big Dipper, on my view, I, there's a picture right under that of the site, and there's a big metal object off to the right. There's a jug. Yeah, that's the one I was talking about. Where I How like, can you say that's an alien craft when you look at the parts? Well, and the thing is, that's not even the photo from what they were they're looking at. That's what I'm saying. It's like, why did you put that there? It's like they just took something like... Maybe this is what we're going to find. It's, I, I, yeah. If you went to the one, the next one down after they say Noah re- noted, uh-huh. and it says the Explorer twenty eighteen. Now that picture looks like nothing other than a habitat for crabs. Well, exactly, and that's what they found. But why? Yeah, that's a, that's a case of the social media person for Noah just grabbing something and putting it out there. But 
yeah, it, they got more clicks because of it. But that made me think that was actually a, a photo from it. And and you, if you see that, you would say that, yeah, that's obviously that is a shipwreck or something where somebody just happened to spread a whole bunch of artifacts down there for you to find. You know what I just did? I just uh, clicked on that image uh-huh. to see where it went, and then I got rid of their icon part. And then I got to the real pictures, what it looks like. That's quite interesting. They could have used any one of the other ones. Well, I, th- I think they only had the sonar image before they went down, and I think that's where the social media person took a little bit of liberties and said, hey, here's what this could have been. Yeah. Well, if you click on that and it, it'll go full screen, it's more interesting than what that little one was. You can see the sea life on the bottom. Uh, really interesting looking. It's really dark and dingy looking, but uh, the the area they had, uh, you know, the actual photo of is pretty decent. But that's how- worth looking at. Well, how, how about do you see the one where they got the, the fish that looks like it needs a shave? Yeah. I mean, these are, I find those interesting. I would have clicked on it for that. Yeah. You don't need to clickbait with something else. You could have actually used a... Well, it's like they had sea urchin all around those items. I don't think I've seen sea urchin that look quite like those. Those are really... They look like little mine. Anyway, it's quite interesting. I like, But I had to dig a little deeper than the article. Yeah. And that's the type of stuff I'd like. I... I, I can't even find that stuff on TV anymore. Well, it's like the one we saw that was a sonar, and it looked like the Millennium Falcon on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And it honestly God, looked like the you know, like a spacecraft. And, you know, you would think people would follow that up with some really good detailed photos, and it was a rock formation, but, man, that looks like two Millennium Falcon. It did. Or maybe uh, George Lucas based the Millennium Falcon Alert on Alert from that. Google Chrome. Spasix's massive Falcon Very Heavy much. Rocket lands $130 million <laughs> military launch. Co- I'm sorry. You didn't hear it, Mac, but I've, I had some video leak through from my computer. Surprised it normally doesn't happen during the show. Uh, uh, and then, then here we have one we talk about interesting discovery. Scholars solve a mystery of the Oregon's Coast beeswax wreck. For centuries, beeswax and Chinese porcelain have washed ashore and Naflam spit on the North Oregon coast. Now, archival and archaeological evidence points to Santa Cristo de Borjo, the 17th century Manilan galleon owned by Kingdom of Spain as a mysterious vessel commonly known today as the Beeswax Wreck. Stories of a very large shipwreck began circulating during the earliest days of the Euro-American presence in the Pacific Northwest as fur traders and explorers learned from native people that a large ship had long ago wrecked on the... I said Nephilim before, was it? Nehalem split, N-E-H-A-L-E-M. Survivors and cargo included beeswax. The story shrouded in speculation, often contradictory Euro-American folklore, captivated treasure hunters who searched for a century and a half on nearby Nikonin Mountain and adjacent beaches. But which ship it was, archaeologist-led team of the beeswax wreck project used geology, archaeology, porcelain analysis, combined with documentation from Spanish archives to pinpoint the ship's likely identity. Beeswax stamped with Spanish shippers' marks confirmed the wreck's origin. Patterns of Chinese porcelain shards allowed researchers to narrow the date range. The Spanish Manila galleon trade was first was the first global network and close to 300 galleons left the Philippines for Acapulco, carrying Asian goods during its 250-year span. The project determined the beeswax wreck was one of the two galleons that vanished without a trace, the Santa Crisco uh, de Burgios, which sailed in 16, 
93 or the San Francisco Xavier, which left Manila in 1705. Mapping the location of the beeswax deposits allowed project members to assert the confidence the ship almost certainly wrecked before the 1700 Carcadia earthquake and tsunami. Cascadia? Cameron D. Follett and her team of archivists then undertook wide-ranging research in the archives of Spain, the Philippines, Mexico to locate all available information about Santo Crisco de Borjo of 1693. They discovered the history of the ship's captain, a complete crew and passenger list, important facts about about the cargo. Researchers now know the vessel was carrying two and a half tons of liquid mercury. If the wreck is located, testing for mercury will provide confirmation to the ship's identity. After many years of work to resolve this multi-century mystery, the group have recently published their findings special issue of the Oregon Historical Quarterly, which is a peer-reviewed public history journal published by the Oregon Historical Society. Um, And they go on and on where you can get it. As a side note, I sent you a link to the Oregon Encyclopedia. And it basically said the wreck was first described in writing in 1813. And it goes on about the uh, treasure hunting for it. But the interesting part is if you go to that article that I clicked on for you and you click on the little pictures, it gives you a little history, shows you a picture of the ship, which is interesting. Okay. So it was worth actually look like. I'm, I'm clicking on it now. And it's good pictures of the cargo from that aspect. Did, tell me when you get there. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the article now. All right, you see the, the first picture of the coast? Uh, Off to the right should be a picture. Yeah, mine is just showing bunches of globs of what beeswax. Oh, there's the one of the coast. Okay, now click on it twice, and you get to a, a picture of two gentlemen with a big sign, hunt beeswax, yeah. and it's got a picture of the ship. Mm-hmm. That's an awesome model. That is a great <laughs> ship. My grandfather used to have a bunch of those ships uh, as decoration. That was, uh, and he actually had made some as a hobby. Those are beautiful. Yeah, the article is quite interesting, but uh, the, I like the picture because it showed you what that boat actually looked like. Which makes sense. If you're going to have a vessel that needs to go all the way around the world, you want something with a little bit of mass. Well, it looked better than that picture they had on the front cover of this one. You know, it's sinking upside down, sort of. Yeah. At least this one gave you a heck of a perspective. Cool. And then that does it for the articles. We do have one potentially cool scuba gear. The carbon fiber-hulled submersible reaches another milestone and prepares for an expedition to explore the wreck of the eight, the RMS Titanic next year. Uh, they, uh, the group uh, OceanGate announced on June 27th successful unmanned depth test of the manned submersible Titan to validate the hull at 4,000 meters, 13,123 feet. Titan is one of the only five known manned submersibles in the world capable of reaching this depth and the only one that is privately owned. Designed and engineered by OceanGate, the Titan is constructed from carbon fiber, and titanium is the largest submersible of its type in the world. The sub is scheduled to survey the wreck of the RMS Titanic in June of 2019. As part of Titanic's extensive testing program, OceanGate team conducted a series of unmanned dives by lowering the submersible on a monofilament line incrementally to 4,000 meters on board the sub, strain gauges, viewport, displacement sensors, and custom-designed acoustic sensors measured the hull, the health of the hull to provide data that the team analyzed during and between dives. Meaning the sensors will remain permanently mounted in the sub and give a pilot real-time feedback 
on the hull's behavior in a future manned dives. Following the cable test, Stockton Rush, OceanGate CEO and chief pilot, will dive solo in the incremental depth until reaching 4,000 meters. There is so much left to learn about the ocean, comments Rush with Titan. We can now take people to see more than half the world's ocean. It's a lifetime of our planet, a light lifeline of our planet, and I believe the future of mankind lies beneath the surface, not in outer space. Just sort of grinned and giggles. I sent another link. Uh-huh. The picture that they showed there looks a little bit different than the one they're putting in the water. <laughs> is it is is it the case of the drawing doesn't quite match up with the... The real-life item? Yeah, go to that one. It says Titan Bahamas Deep Dive Test, uh, June 27th of this year. And it's uh, the Titan aboard the launch platform before the test. And then they have some underwater shots of the platform underwater before the launch. And then they have some on the launch. But it don't look quite like what they showed us in the first picture. Are you there? Yeah, I'm seeing that. Now, is that a case of for the test, they're just doing the, the pressure hull? And in the other article, they're showing it all cleaned up for, you know, like it's it's fancy going to dancing clothes? Well, I can't. I'm trying to look at the the, uh, the front sphere. And I don't. I, from what I'm seeing on this test one, it's not quite that big, like maybe a third that big. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that was obviously an, an Arctic, uh, Arctic. <laughs> artist interpretation. Ar- artist uh, <laughs> representation, Arctic. I, I don't know. I think we just shut down now. I'm <laughs> ready for a nap. Uh, yeah, and the, yeah, and those other photos definitely look like more they're just testing parts on the platform. They want to make sure they get it back up, it looks like, if it dies. Yeah. Titan suspended on high-strength monofilament line start the test. That's way down now, and I'm curious how much that costs. It didn't say. It doesn't. He does make a point saying that uh, following the cable test, he will dive solo in incremental depths until reaching 4,000 meters. In doing so, he'll join James Cameron as one of the only two people in history to solo dive this depth. Yeah, you got the money, you can do that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, you know. uh, that and the uh, brass items that go below. <laughs> yeah, the the, the brass the brass below. components. Yeah, <laughs> well, and, and or or just not really being too concerned if you don't make it back. I suppose because at some point you've got to you've got to accept the risk. I mean, you're oh, yeah. you're you're in the one in twenty or worse odds on some of this stuff. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. If you're enjoying this, uh, you can get access to our show notes early. Uh, any support is greatly appreciated. Uh, visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to the Patreon link, and $3 or more will get you early access. Uh, we, we certainly appreciate it. We understand if you can't do it. If you can't do it, if you could head on over to whatever platform you use to listen to the podcast and give us a five-star review, that would help. It, it makes it visible to new listeners who will enjoy the program. And uh, I just verified that in the last week, uh, Google has launched their podcast platform and we are listed on it. And they don't have to do anything. We're showing up right away. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they you know, the, the world's best scuba diving podcast, they must have realized that and just listed <laughs> us automatically. You know, the, Google's nice that way. So I am not getting any diving in and, I have to say this, even though they can't do anything now, but stop graduating. <laughs> I've had graduation parties. 
like every weekend since the middle of May. And next year's even going to be worse. I can't, I'm, I can't even believe it now. Here we are almost in July, and I still have graduation parties. My wife yesterday said, remember the Saturday is so-and-so's graduation. Like, you got to be kidding me. Oh. It's hard to believe. Like I said, this 4th of July weekend coming up. I know. We just were talking, was it last weekend, the uh, beginning of summer? And that's the thing yeah. is that the dates are just set up to just give you a gut kick and tell you that you've lost your summer already. So if you haven't well, gone... The river- I was going to say, the, the the weather is not helping us a bit from oh. the aspect of the weather. The river is still dark, black, fast. It's not a good place to be yeah. at this time. Yeah, they just need to bypass it and go out to the to the Great Lakes. And that's where a lot of the people have been doing. Seeing people get out there, it hasn't been me, but hopefully at some point in time I'll be able to. I just hate being my, my first dive of the season to be in July. That is That is embarrassing. But, oh, well, it happens. At least I'm going to get out there and... And do some diving. Also mowing. I'm becoming a professional mower. Just mow the same, yeah. uh, you know, 100 yards of uh, of lawn. Every three days when you yeah. had a dry spell, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, hay mode. This is as soon as it doesn't doesn't rain. Yeah, I, True. I mean, I was thinking that if I were really a farmer and couldn't do my corn, I'd plant rice. Yes. <laughs> oh, you're not kidding. The, 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 oh. Well, the, we, we've lost roads roads of the culverts the rain has been so hard that the they've they've washed out the culverts and and some of the roads were had to be closed and repaired i went around the neighborhood and took some pictures of some local bridges uh last week we had that just the five inches of rain and took and i'm going to take pictures when it stops raining to say where it normally is so you can get a perspective of how much water can be you know when they talk about flash flood you're oh, talking yeah. from a stream that's you know, down here, and then five hours later, you got one foot before you hit the bridge. Yeah, you're talking six, eight foot deep. Yeah, the uh, you know where Barbet's Farm is on Cleveland Road. Yeah, there was water over the road I had to drive through. That was, and I have all the years I've been there, and that always floods in that field. But this is the first time where it has been. It was a solid six inches over the road, and the ditches on either side are not that shallow anyway. So you're always thinking, you know, if it wasn't for the car in front of me making it fine, I wouldn't have driven through it. I'd have turned around and gone back. And I didn't even have my scuba gear in the car. <laughs> well, has anybody been getting out to dive? I mean, we we talked about it a little bit, but it, I've I've seen some videos that many of the boat captains have been getting their vessels moving out there in the lake. Well, Sweeney has been out. Bob has been out. Um, How about John? Bob has been out. Uh, Kevin, of course. Yep. You can keep him out of the water. Yep. Yep. John. So there, we have good muddies out there getting wet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have some that aren't. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the aren't side of the equation, but the, the ones who have have been posting some nice videos. Yep. Yep. So eventually I'll, I'll, I won't say I'm going to catch up with them, but at least join them. We'll get out there well, in the water. I, I hope somebody gets on the max rec to see what that looks like this year. To see if any more has been uncovered from the sand or if sand has started encroaching. Yeah, because that's the other thing. Um, and where was it? Were you sharing the article with me or somebody did? Oh, I know what it was. Going through some of the old paperwork for the preserve. They had yes. the they had the barge listed. Yeah. And I was like, there's the barge with GPS coordinates. We need to be out there now <laughs> looking for that. Cause, you know, By the way, I, I saw your other note. Did they have that? Uh, meeting i don't know 
I th- I, I think I, for some reason I think I'm a week off or something. And then I saw I've been busy at work. I've had visitors from out of town, but I saw Kevin had posted something, and I think I'm only getting about half the emails uh, for the preserve. So that's uh, I'll I'll work with Kevin. It's and it's it's my Hotmail account. It does not Microsoft and Google are not the best of friends. So uh, I'm, I'm I've got to come in both the two. I got the Gmail account. And that's where all that kind of stuff comes. Yeah, and that's what I need to do is have use my Gmail account. I try not to because my Hotmail is where everything ends up at, but my Gmail feeds to my Hotmail. So unless it's something that can't, you know, the, so I I usually start down at the most spammy and work my way up, but I may have to use my Gmail account for that one. Uh, so do you have a uh, safety tip of the week? Well, I have a safety briefing, or I should say I have a, an accident investigation report. How's that? That'll work. Experienced cave divers die, so I already gave it away, during underwater exploration. For Brad and Lee, there was no greater thrill than finding new passages in their underwater cave systems, especially networks they had explored before. The idea that more people had been on the surface of the moon than in some of these caves they visited kept them going. It's all about the thrill of the discovery. When Brad noticed a small corridor leaving off, leading off the main cave system, he signaled to Lee they should check it out. She immediately agreed. They didn't let the other buddy team on the dive know they were taken off. They planned to be gone just for a few moments off the main line. They wanted to take a quick look so they could return later to map it with their records. After looking around for a few minutes, confirming they had found a cave neither had seen before, Brad signals they should return to find the other dive team. They turned around, headed back the way they came, but never found the main cave or the line the other divers had laid down. The divers. Brad and Lee were husband and wife. They found their long relationship aided in their cave explorations, helping them to anticipate each other's moves before they, that happened, or they happened. Both were experienced cave divers who had similar goals when it came to exploration. Brad was a cave diving instructor and typically led the way, but Lee was never far behind them. They were in their mid-40s, no health issues. Brad and Lee joined a second pair of divers to explore a cave system all four of them knew very well. Even though they had died the site many times, Brad and Lee never stopped looking for new offshoot caves. Most of the time, they didn't see much. New passages would only go for a few feet before closing off to nothing, but it didn't keep them from searching. Now the dive. Both divers on the other team had been certified for cave diving by Brad, so he knew their skills and was comfortable with them. As a group, they agreed that the two less experienced divers would lead, laying out the cave reel and controlling the dive. Cave reel is strong thin line attached outside or just inside the cave opening that divers use to find their way back. In general, divers know never to leave the reel without tying on another line to it so they don't get lost in the sea. When crafting a planned dive, cave divers determine the bottom time using the rule of thirds, one-third of air for cave penetration, one for return to the surface, and one-third for content. And some prefer having even greater reserve. Brad and Lee agreed that when any member of the dive pair hit the rule of thirds and determined it was time to exit, all four would begin their way towards the surface. Recent rains had churned up the water somewhat, fouling the visibility, but they all agreed the conditions would make a more dive, a more interesting dive. The accident. The foursome entered the freshwater spring and made their way to the cave system entry. Lee Diver secured his line outside the cave, confirmed everyone was ready to enter before he moved forward. But he went second, followed by Brad Lee. Lee entered last. Visibility was worked, 
worse than they expected, but they still moved forward. Brad often said, any day diving is a good day, so none of them considered aborting the dive. To keep from interfering with the first team, Brad and Lee held back a bit when one of them noticed a small opening off to the side of the corridor. They decided to check it out. Both divers were carrying K-reels of their own, but neither pulled them out to scare a jump line to the one of their friends, the one their friends had laid. There's no one, you know, no way to know what happened next, but when the first buddy team turned the dive and got heading toward the surface, they real Brad, realized Brad and Lee were no longer following them. They assumed there'd been a problem, and then Brad and Lee aborted the dive, so they continued reeling in their line, and they left the cave. So only after they returned to the surface, they realized Brad and Lee were missing. They knew the divers were still in the cave. Friendly's body were discovered later, 250 feet from the cave entry. Both divers had completely exhausted their air supply. Analysis. Brad and Lee broke a cardinal rule of cave diving, one they both knew very well. Never leave the main line without attaching a jump line to ensure you can find your way back. The couple let their own familiarity with the cave system override their decision-making, and that got them in trouble. Had they tied off a jump line, they could have easily followed it back to catch the other diver. Even if they had been coming back before you and moved their line, it would have tugged on yours. If they had known about it, the other team could have waited or left the primary cave line in place. Cave divers do not normally leave cave lines tied off in an effort to keep untrained divers from following. First-time team could have left the slate where they found the jump line tie off to say they had exited. None of that happened. There is an important lesson to learn from the dive accident, even for non-cave divers. Bradley were overconfident and chose to break the rules, rules Brad taught to all his students. Too often, experienced divers and instructors believe they can rely on their experience to solve a problem that should never have come up in the first place. There are no diving police to catch you if you violate a rule of diving. Often other people or people take risks and violate safety rules and make it back to the surface without a problem. And that is until things don't go their way. So don't take shortcuts or fail to prepare for the diving environment. Underwater is an unforgiving place, and the moment you're taken seriously, you're at risk. Watching your pressure gauge drop to zero is no way to spend your last few minutes of your life. So lessons for life. Get proper training and equipment. Diving in any overhead environment is a sure way to get in trouble if you don't know what you're doing. Follow the rules. Safety rules in diving are often created on other people's mistakes. Learn from that. Protect yourself. There's nothing underwater worth dying for. Follow the safety rules and live to dive another day. Another good article. And, and, and right there that highlights it is learn from other people's mistakes. Don't be and the key, though, confident. Your yeah, your experience, you've done it before, bang. Yeah. I just can't believe you didn't do a tie-on. Ain't no way in hell. You know, shipwreck or otherwise, you just don't do it. Well, I, I, unless I, one thought the other one did. That's the only thing I can think of, because even in good visibility, if you've got a, a reel down there, Use it. Just just tie off so, okay. and go. We we do it on wrecks where we can pop the surface anyway. It just it's it's a tool. It makes it easier. Why why do things the tough way? And in this case, the way that gets you killed. So the only thing I think is one must have thought the other one did it, and it's like whoops. Yeah, you can't always count on that uh, intuition. Well, that's the ones you hate about. Yeah, I mean the people who experience are freaking instructors, and for whatever other reason, they didn't do something. Both of them knew they should have done. And, and, and that, I'll never know. And that should be a warning, especially to learn from, is that if 
it can happen to experienced trainers who are who are training you the correct way to do it. Uh, yeah. Then what would make you think that you could shortcut something because you've got a little bit of experience yourself? You know, and we 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 are making an assumption there that that they didn't tie off. They may have tied off and it didn't connect. But they you know didn't I mean? tie off or something frayed or, or broke. Or they tied off or or somehow their their tie off became disconnected. Oh. Yeah. I mean, you really don't know. N- not for sure. But all more reasons to double, triple check stuff. Make a plan, yeah. dive your plan. I'm not sure how comfortable I would be with a single lifeline anyway. I mean, having two people dive parallel so the lines are together, I know you can get tangles and stuff, but I you know, I, I would say, you know, a couple hundred feet in, it goes something goes pop or snap and it's like, oh shoot, now what? Yeah, I would rather worry about having some tangled line that you have to throw out after the dive than to uh, not have any line at all. Yeah. I'd like to thank everybody who's tuned in or downloading the program. You certainly appreciate it. We couldn't do this without you. Um, if you want to leave your mark, you can go to our website, uh, click on the About page, and look for the fan map. Pin your map. You can be anonymous if you'd like and get to see where all the other listeners of the show live throughout the world. You can follow us on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed. We're on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. You can follow me on Twitter at Darren Jilson. And maybe if I actually get out there and do some diving, I'll do some tweeting. Uh, and if there's some other social media you want us on, let us know. I've been a little reluctant on the Instagram or Snapchat, but if that's really the platform that you want to connect on, let us know. And you know, I'll investigate as much as it pains me. To do something like that. You got feedback for the show, the show at scubaobsessed.com. Uh, Mac, do you have anything you'd like to plug? No, the feedback part is what I'd like to hack in there is, you know, we can't improve if we don't know where we're doing something bad. Yeah. Uh, there was something else along those lines that maybe I need to do some surveys, get some, some feedback. Uh, see, we, we are here. We're almost into July. God, June is just, June has got to been the, the quickest month we've had so far. Yeah. Well, if Kevin was here, he'd be telling you to go out and appreciate your librarians. Uh, also, uh, visit your local dive shops. Uh, have your gear service, make sure everything's ready to go. And if you're not using your dive shops now, then when you do need to use them, they may not be there. Go out and visit them, get your air fills, get everything topped off and checked out. And why not do some diving? You bought that gear for a reason. Get out there and use it. And I'm laughing at myself as I say that. Are you ready for that time of the show? Ever ready. Okay. This one I think we may have done a version of before. So as a bonus question, uh, you, if you can tell us which episode it is, maybe we'll edit the show notes. But uh, two divers are out camping. Ralph and John went camping on the beach with their favorite dive site. After they got their tent all set up, both men found sound asleep. Some hours later, Ralph woke up and says, John, look towards the sky. What do you see? John replies, I see millions of stars. What's that tell you? Asked Ralph. John ponders for a minute and says, well, astronomically speaking, there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrology, uh, astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is on Leo. Time-wise, it appears approximately a quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, the Lord is all-powerful and we, have a small, we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, it means we have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Ralph? That you're dumber than a box of rocks. It means someone stole our tent. 
I don't know if we've had that before, but I still like that one. It is. I, I, I think it was a couple in the other version. It was a man and a wife. So the, 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 diver, the diving connection, I think, goes pretty well. This goes to show you may not be thinking about what you're thinking about. So until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. <laughs>